0: Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm Damien Fantato, Deputy Editor of Financial Advisor. While some people are planning their summer holidays, Neil Woodford is desperately trying to raise money to meet redemptions from his 3.7 billion equity income fund. Before it was suspended last month, outflows reached 9 million every working day due to the fund's poor performance. With me to discuss this and the effect this will have for advisors are Brian Dennehy, Chartered Financial Planner at Dennehy Weller and Head of Fund Expert. Hello, Brian. Hello. And Dave Baxter, Deputy Editor of Asset Allocator and Money Management. Hello, Dave. Hi, Damien. How's it going? I'm very well, thank you. Brian, let's start with you. Um, What, I suppose, very simply were the attractions of this fund? Why, Why would people have bought into this fund in the first place?
1: They bought the story. OK, that's fairly straightforward, isn't it? Yeah. I
0: suppose when you have a name like Neil Waterford, that's fairly attractive, isn't it?
1: Well, that was it, really. I mean, we before when he announced he was leaving Invesco Perpetual, we, we highlighted at the time that things were already drifting for Neil, performance terms. And not only was performance drifting, though we highlighted and published research that said there are better alternatives to his old Invesco funds anyway. What was also the case that was that other people spotted that. We didn't have some special insight. We were just paying attention. But others were too. And when we issued our research... When did he announce he was leaving? Sort of summer 2013, late 2013? Yeah, I mean, other people, there was evidence of other people bailing out at the same time, and we did actually say that that was the case. It wasn't just us being churlish or difficult or anything.
0: And a lot has been said about how important Hargreaves Lansdowne has been for um, Neil Orsford. But how popular was he among advisors? Do you have
1: an impression of that? I mean, I, 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 don't know, I don't know what the numbers are. I don't know if any of you other guys know exactly what the numbers are. Uh, I think what became most evident in recent years, because they were bigger concerns, was some of the fund groups having to sell out of their fund funder funds uh, over the last two or three years. People like Jupiter, for example, uh, found themselves uh, selling. I don't know about um, other financial advisors, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if anyone has got any stats on that, but I would imagine... Quite a few were because quite a lot of advisors don't actually have a clear process for buying funds. Having said that, most of the industry doesn't in every quarter. Uh,
0: And Dave, you you do a lot of work covering um, the DFM market. How popular was he on the um, DFM side of things?
2: So with DFMs, we have a bit of a clearer picture than with um, advisors. As Brian says, it's quite hard to gauge. Asset Allocator tracks a large number of of DFM model portfolios. And if you look at around October last year, there were two or three DFMs that still held equity income, the flagship fund. But as of um, April this year, it seems that no one held it any longer. Mm -hmm. Um, And even looking at that October figure, that doesn't suggest that Woodford's very widely held or was very widely held even last year. Um, So DFM's here to have kind of given up on the Woodford
1: story. Is it uh, possible that time ago? the DFMs also weren't declaring they were holding it because, frankly, they were a bit embarrassed and weren't clear on how to deal with the liquidity problem? Because none of them even then could have got out without taking a bit of a hit. That possible? I, th- I don't I think know. I'm not still questioning show up. it. I just don't yeah. know. <laughs> don't know how you gather those numbers.
2: Yeah, I mean it's from disclosures, so it should still
0: show up.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Fair enough.
0: Yeah. I guess there's also the possibility that the experts knew something was wrong and, and got out fairly promptly. Yeah, and that's something that's been cited. I mean,
2: taking DFMs, when the property funds gated back in 2016, DFMs were criticised because they have the first mover advantage, they have the specialism, and a lot of them got out of those funds first, um, allegedly. Mm -hmm. And they were criticised because that was seen as leaving more vulnerable investors in. But equally, it can be a good thing because in cases like these, I think a long time in advance, they've managed to kind of the problem and uh,
0: stay clear of that earlier. Yeah,
1: I have. I have a more jaundiced view on that one. I think if the <laughs> if the DFMs were that expert, they wouldn't have been in the Woodford fund in the first place.
0: So, I mean, would you agree with that idea that Brian, that people who knew experts on on, on this issue sold out earlier and that left a large number of retail clients invested? A,
1: a, an awful lot of retail clients had been selling. We we know that from the um, fund expert mm-hmm. side. I mean, we'd never had any vice clients in in the Woodford funds. From launch. But on the um, non-advised side, there were certainly we were getting new clients coming through who had large holdings. And um, some of them got a bit peed off with that, but some of them were also quite happy that they finally took the advice. But bear in mind, this, this all began to become much more public in the summer of 2017. So you didn't need to be expert, you just needed to be paying attention.
2: Yeah, I mean, he had, he had some quite public blobs, didn't he? I mean, that was a time of Provident Financial, wasn't it? And some of um, quite a few other names.
1: Yeah, but also people like Jupiter were very publicly yes. selling out.
0: And from the fund expert side of things, Brian, do you, what's the impression that you get for why people didn't stay put? Uh, is it just because they've...
1: They they did not stay put because we kept telling them they shouldn't be in there <laughs> um, hmm. regularly. I mean, our, 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 we just issued a 50-page note of all our research over the last six years saying why you shouldn't have bought any of the Woodford Funds. So any time a new client came on board with um, Fund Expert, they they had access to all that stuff.
0: And did the people who stay put? Was that just because of faith in Woodford?
1: They bought a story, and the problem when you don't have a clear process for buying uh, any investment, a fund or otherwise is you then don't have a clear process for knowing when it's failing. And, and there, therein lies the problem. If you have a clear process for buying and then the process fails, you know you should be getting out. And, and the problem for a lot of those people, and that's also a lot of the, a lot of the experts who remain invested in that fund and, and remained recommending it. And, and, and then it's not just how it in the last 12 months. There's many others, if you go back through your own newspaper as well, you're going to find plenty of people who, say, last summer, last autumn, were saying, yes, but we still think he's a top-class manager and you should be in the fund that will come all right in the end. Mm. Well, it was all cobblers, really, because they, they, the people who were saying that didn't have any process for uh, underlying that, for having recommended him in the first place or, or any reason for still being in there. Mm. Stories are a powerful thing because if you then sell, you know, it's behavioural, you've you, you then got the problem of acknowledging that you made a mess of it.
0: Mm. And got i got sucked guess, in.
1: Uh, and, I, and some of my wealthiest clients in particular who's very successful, huge vast sums of money in the city, I sat down at breakfast with him once and he said, did you know I got the Woodford Fund? I said, no, I didn't know that. I said, I, and I, I didn't sort of tell him off or anything. <laughs> but what I did say was, just out of interest, why did you buy it? And he said, oh, I really like the adverts. And this is one of the most successful and wealthiest people in the city that I know.
2: I, I was going to say, it's also interesting, I guess, on the um, the whole idea of whether Woodford would come back because he's had a kind of contrarian positioning for a while and people often cite the other times when he's been invested differently to other people so the dot-com boom and the financial crash where he's not held the kind of hot things to hold and uh, in the end that's kind of worked out for him so i imagine like you're saying that's kind of a strong story there which is quite hard to resist
1: for some people so- Well, it's hard to resist. And and what was also interesting in the the press in the last few weeks was how many city editor types, and you might have spotted one or two of them and won't mention any names, were coming out saying how angry they were that they felt they'd been fooled and misled. That was ridiculous, you know. Some of these guys are city editor level, and they had no idea why they were buying Woodford, other than they bought the story, and now they're angry because they feel stupid.
0: And what about um, Woodford's other funds? How do they differ in in composition from uh, from equity income? There's some crossover. What's the? Are there any particular differences between equity income and patient capital and um, income focus?
2: So yeah, like you say, there's there's a decent overlap in stocks, but income focus, if you want to simplify it, doesn't have exposure to those unquoted stocks yep. um, that have got uh, partly got equity income into trouble. Patient capital goes much in the other direction, in the sense that it's purely about those kind of early stage companies, although it has a mixture of listed and unlisted. But now you're seeing that interesting problem of um, the overlap for both funds. Because patient capital share price has um, been hit quite a lot. And then uh, Income Focus has, I guess, two problems. One is that some of its shares may be coming under pressure because Woodford in equity income has to offload them, which is pushing prices down. And on the other hand, people are just panicking about uh, Woodford in general. So um, plenty of investors have been pulling money out of income focus and also Fidelity's platform even stops people from buying the fund. Mm.
1: Which was fascinating, wasn't it? Mm. I, yeah. I, I keep meaning to get in touch with my contacts there to ask them how they can justify doing that because I understand why they're doing it now. But, but just mm. um, sort of for, from a reg- regulatory point of view and T and all that, I mean, Fidelity wouldn't have done that unless they could. But that's... that's a, Really big move to Mm. make on their part. Really big
0: move. Yeah, it's a dramatic step, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And these other funds that Woodford runs, are they more popular among advisors? Um, So with patient capital,
2: there have been a couple of kind of multi-asset investors that hold it. So uh, one that springs to mind is Seneca. Uh, I can't remember, I think it was early this year they may have bought in. And as far as I've heard, they've been uh, kind of topping up. Mm. So I guess that's an example. So they've doubled down. Essentially, yeah, they've uh, they've doubled down on uh, patient capital. And they focus on, um, they like to talk about value and very valuations oriented. For them now, I guess they're among people who are kind of seeing this crisis as one way to get into patient capital, in this case, at a cheaper level. Which, you know, I mean, people, I don't know, people still seem quite hopeful about the case for patient capital in some cases. Um, but that kind of fund is definitely very long term play because mm. you yeah. need you need a couple of those companies to really do well but obviously you're equally going to have companies that just it doesn't really
0: work out and burn. do they have um the other funds do they have attractions that equity income doesn't
1: well i was surprised i have to say at the huge overlap actually between the two unit trusts uh someone draw that threw that out a few weeks ago it was bigger than i thought the patient capital mm. one um, it was interesting what you just said there about, you know, some people still, you know, hope that it will come back and look mm. for value and all the rest of it. But, you know, hope, um, for, a lot of people are driven by that kind of thing, but hope isn't an investment strategy at all. And um, I think there are also some serious issues around patient capital, which were brought out in the Wall Street Journal article, Recent days, which um, one of my colleagues gave to me earlier on, it, uh, you know that it, there is gearing on the fund mm. um, and it 's quite a lot of gearing money lent from northern trust and what was really interesting with the Wall Street Journal analysis, assuming it was correct, of course, was that no other equivalent funds to patient capital investment trusts in the u k uh, have any gearing. They kind of take the view that do you know what we've we 've got our backsides pretty close to the floor anyway when we're when we're investing in these sorts of stocks mm. um but the um but but Neil uh, and his team went out and borrowed a stack of money i think it was was it 150 million from northern trust something mm. like that and the gearing is uh, i think around 20% sorry if the numbers are slightly off but that's my recollection from reading earlier this morning which is an extraordinary difference compared to his peer funds of a, of a similar kind who feel that they're taking enough risks without also adding gearing in there. It really worry me if I was someone or if I had clients in, in that fund. We've never had clients.
0: So, as an advisor, Brian, what, what do you feel is the best way to sort of address an illiquid holding like Patient Capital, for example, in a, in, a, in a portfolio? Is it best to steer clear of something like that completely, or how do you how do you integrate it into a
1: client's portfolio? Um, Well, it's funny, really, because the whole issue of illiquidity, we could probably talk for another couple of hours just on that one, because it it stretches way beyond. um, I mean, most people think of illiquidity and they think of property. And uh, ourselves and, and again, quite a few others and and, and no doubt yourselves, too, have been talking about uh, illiquidity in bond markets. I've been going on about that since uh, 2007, 2008, when there was horrible illiquidity in bond markets. Since then, we've had, for example, a huge volume of ETFs launched, which are picking up a lot of terribly trashy new bond launches, corporate bond launches over the last 10 years. There's a horrible liquidity problem just waiting over the horizon uh, in bond funds generally of any kind. doesn't matter what, what kind they are, frankly. This is, you know, I'm not knocking ETFs or unit trusts or investment trusts. There's a horrible liquidity problem full stop. With things like these, say, say private equity investment trusts, what the clients just need to understand is that they're buying something which is going to take a big hit in a downturn as they would have done in 2008. They might have seen 50% or more falls, depending on which one they were in. There was a huge variance in performance at that time. But you also need to look at... Uh, so I was only looking at our numbers that we produced only a couple of months ago just comparing because we looked at the private equity investment trusts versus small cap unit trusts and investment trusts. And actually, the private equity trusts didn't seem to add a terrible amount of extra performance as we look backwards or, for example, notably reduce risk. So it was interesting. We, we, we didn't expect that number, mm. um, but uh, actually there had to be a question mark over whether you would bother with them at all. I think one conclusion we did reach was that when the boo hits the van, and private equity investment trusts absolutely plummet much more than their equivalent, say, small-cap unit trusts or small-cap investment trusts, that's the time to buy those. Mm. I think it's an opportunistic buy at the self-evident bottom of the cycle. So
0: that's the sort of the purpose. So funds holding sort of pre-IPO companies, that's the sort of thing that you, that's the time that you would buy those. Yeah. To buy them. At yeah, that's so... They'll be
1: completely trashed.
0: Mm. In, a, in a strange kind of way, now might be a good time to get into patient capital.
1: Oh, we're a long way off the bottom <laughs> of the cycle. What the, what the fund is, is really doing is really, to, is waving a, a warning flag to everyone out there that liquidity is a very, very serious problem uh, across a wide range of uh, funds of all kinds and in a range of asset
0: classes. Do you have any thoughts on, on the use of um, pre-IPO companies in, in, in a, within a portfolio? What... In terms of the uh, liquidity issues? Yeah. Or,
2: um, it's an interesting one because there's no obvious answer, but there are some ideas floating around. So last week, uh, the Investment Association proposed uh, the idea of what it called a long-term asset fund. And they're going to kind of bring out the fuller details a bit later on. One of the ideas is that it moves away from daily dealing, which has been this problem in creating this mismatch. Uh, if, if you have assets, you can't trade in a day, but, you know, everyone loves being able to sell them by a fund in a day, then that's not going to work out if they're a... Uh, Problems such as Neil Woodford's. So that could be interesting. I guess more generally, you've got a more rigorous monitoring of portfolios, which might come down to the FCA. You could have just a focus on closed ended funds. But obviously, as, as we've seen, well, partly as we've seen with patient capital, it's not quite as simple as just having that structure because if there are problems, then the share price will suffer and those shares may not be as liquid as you expect. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you may be in for a bit of a, a surprise there.
1: One's going to run and run for a while yet, isn't
2: it? Mm, yeah. Definitely,
1: yeah. And I don't think they're going to come up with any solutions before the next downturn, either.
0: <laughs>
1: so, it'll uh, hang on to your hats.
0: Yeah, I mean, Brian. What do you think as an advisor is the is the purpose of a of a long term sort of asset fund that you can only access once a quarter, for example, when you could just as easily invest in an infrastructure trust?
1: Yeah, I don't know about an infrastructure. For us, particularly, um, I, I, I think that point you make, though, is 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 exactly what we would be looking at: is how how will people be able to access it on on what terms, and what are the alternative fund structures giving us access to the same assets? And you know, and, and I guess until that happens, we we can't really take a view on it. I'm, i I hope they have some wide-ranging and thoughtful discussions, and they also include people from the retail side of the industry before they make these decisions.
0: I guess a lot of this comes down to the question of how you differentiate between luck and skill in in, in fund management. Uh, Brian, do you have any uh,
1: thoughts on this? Yeah, I think there's, um, we did a blog on this just last week and um, there's a, uh, not advertising my book, but there's a chapter in my book saying, you know, uh, headlined, are fund managers stupid or lazy? And the conclusion is actually, I'm spoiling it now. (laughs) The conclusion is they're neither, but the point is that so many in the industry, including many fund managers, but not all actually, believe they, one, have a superior skill, and two, that there is some way of measuring that. Now, a lot of people listening in will think, well, of course they have skill, and of course there's a way of measuring it, but actually, 92% of all retail funds fail to beat a basic benchmark, and I mean a basic benchmark, and we've done loads of research on this. But that that number though, the ninety-two percent, tallied with numbers that I had seen, probably in, for a couple of decades earlier from other people. And when I used to hear it, I'd go, "Oh, what a load of old rubbish! What do they know?" And then we did the numbers ourselves, and thought, "Oh, okay, <laughs> they've got it about right, actually." So you have to be on your metal if you if you're going to say that fund managers have skill. So I'll be saying, therefore, that 92% of them have no skill at all. Or is in fact the point that the ones who are successful from time to time is a bit like Nassim Talib said, you know, it's a bit. This, it, this is a competition in, in coin tossing, mm. and and the people who appear to look good for prolonged periods, Neil Woodford, from uh, let's say 1999 through to 2010 are actually uh, just expert coin tossers.
0: And, Dave, what's the the, the lesson that you take away from um, what's happened in, it, uh, in the Oxford recently? So many lessons, really.
2: There are loads of questions around buy lists. There are issues around regulation. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess the like central thing is the illiquid assets, isn't it? But there's there's a lot to think about. Mm.
1: Yeah, there's a, there is a lot, yeah. And and including, of course, the role of the, um, the regulators. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And the role of the government. But not this government. I mean, this began this whole era of um, retail uh, fund investing being put on a pedestal began in the 1980s. The the general public was totally ill-prepared in the 1980s to take on the mantle of self-investment. They remain largely unprepared, but we also have an industry which still lacks basic fundamental understanding of investment and how, how markets work from an investment perspective, not from a technical point of view, but how they actually work.
0: David, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. And Brian, thank you again for coming in. No problem. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. And tune in again next time for the uh, FT Advisor podcast. Thank you.